Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 Podcast. Joining me today is Andy Spire. He is coming to us from Olympia, Washington, over on the West Coast. Um, I'm here in the home studio, and we'll be talking to him by phone today. Today's all about technical rescue. We're going to answer some of the burning questions I've always had about technical rescue and how medicine's going to integrate with that. And some of his tips from, you know, over 40 years of experience doing this stuff. And um, we're really excited to have him on the show. So, hi, Andy. How you doing? Good. Happy to be here. How did you first get into EMS and kind of how did you find your passion when it comes to technical rescue, which is what we're going to be talking about today? I was, um, I was 20 years old going to college uh, in Olympia uh, at the Evergreen State College, living in a miserable place uh, where there were mushrooms growing in the closet and it was freezing cold. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I rode my bike on campus and discovered they had an advanced first aid class at the firehouse on the college campus. I went in there and found out that they had a student firefighter program. I joined the program and never looked back. And that took me on a 40 some odd year whirlwind tour of the fire service working all over the country, East coast, West coast, uh, tiny departments, big departments. And even, uh, I did a little stint in Israel. Um, oh, wow. So been quite a ride. Very cool. Yeah. That's really interesting. And, and how did you really hone in and find out that technical rescue is kind of your passion? Was there a certain incident you had or a class you took or a mentor you had that, you know, you, you started doing that stuff and you're like, oh man, this is exactly where I need to be. I guess there was an incident. Um, we responded in the winter uh, of 83 in Kent to a, a report of a child had fallen through the ice on Lake Fenwick. So we're responding out there. And uh, I, I was the driver. I'm the, the young firefighter. There's a lieutenant with me. I go, gosh, lieutenant, we better get a medic unit going um, and an extra engine because, you know, they've fallen through the ice. So we call for assistance. And as we're going out there, they say that uh, another child has fallen through. And I'm like, oh, we better get another medic unit. And better send the ladder truck so we get those coming. And then they say that uh, a civilian has fallen through the ice. So we call for more help. And we get there. And um, it's a long story, but in the end, uh, we were able to save one, um, and uh, the civilian uh, was able to, uh, to, to, put, to get the one kid out to shore. They were taken to uh, Seattle, and they survived. The other child um, went down, and uh, I actually tried to climb down an attic ladder through a hole in the ice. Yeah. Uh, as you can imagine, that's not really possible. No. Because uh, it felt like all my digits were going to fall off. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, and then I ended up uh, taking a uh, a boat out with the um, with the diver, and we instantly found him. And then uh, the picture on the Seattle Times was me doing mouth to mouth and a policeman doing CPR. And I thought, well, hey, we got to get a better program for that. Yeah, we never did. And I ended up leaving there, and I went to New York City. And while in I, while I was in New York, I ended up taking a bunch of rope rescue classes at a uh, regional fire academy. And I thought, hey, this rope rescue stuff interests me. But uh, I was assigned to an engine company at the time, and so I wasn't really able to do much. And then I ended up moving uh, to the West Coast to a small county fire department. And there was an opportunity uh, to start a rope rescue program. And that opened up an opportunity to eventually what was a large countywide team that I ran with 130-some-odd people on it. Wow. And yeah. Then, I worked for several other departments. I ran my own teaching organization. I taught for a for-profit business. I ended up running a nonprofit 
for 30 years. That it's actually still in business. Uh, the Peak Rescue Institute, a couple of other instructors, um, and um, that became my thing, so to speak. Wow. Yeah, that's very cool. And we've had a lot of people on the show who are really passionate about something and have very similar stories of, you know, one incident that impacted them. And from a young guy to a guy with experience like yourself, I just want to say, you know, thanks for identifying that there was a weakness in, you know, what we do and coming up with a plan to provide people with the training that they need to um, get those skills and make sure that they don't have to go through what you went through where, you know, the resources or the training didn't quite meet the incident as, as well as it could have. So I really appreciate you taking the time yeah. out of your life to create something like that. It's something really special. It took, it took eight years, but, uh, in the fire district that I worked for in Washington state, uh, I convinced them of the need to get an ice rescue program. And, uh, we, uh, we, we sent a couple of us up to Canada, became instructors, and I taught several hundred people ice rescue techniques. And um, years later, that same scenario repeated itself uh, on Martha Lake in, uh, in Washington State. Uh, and the end result was one survived and one did not. Uh, but uh, our guys had ice rescue suits and all the equipment. Uh, the new twist for that was it was at night. I had not realized that. I'd forgotten that teenagers are teenagers. Yeah. They'll go out on the frozen lake in the dark. So that added a new twist. To our rescue scenario yeah yeah absolutely i can imagine that's got to complicate it for sure but so anyway so um you know obviously we where i work we use a computer aided dispatch system and there's a lot of discussion that's happened over the last few years about um, what unit should be going on what calls and one of the things that one of our business partner does steve pettit that you know um, at our business um, and at our fire department is he looked at uh, standards of cover. So what type of resources should be responding to what types of incidents? And I'm always interested in technical rescue because as I'm sure you know, and as as I've experienced in the field is technical rescue calls seem to just, just chew up resources. You know, they're just the cookie monster mm -hmm. of the calls where all of a sudden, you know, you go from, you know, trying to get somebody out of an elevator all of a sudden becomes a three, four truck you know, endeavor to try to make sure we have the right number of safety systems and we have people doing what they need to be doing. And so let's just use a basic example, like a, um, a high angle rope rescue or a water rescue. And can you talk a little bit about why some of sure. the resources should be allocated and kind of what their job should be when they get there? So, uh, and this is the problem we were just talking about this week at my job. So when I worked in Snohomish County, our dispatch system and radio system was such and our staffing was such where ladder companies were the technical rescue unit, at least the first piece of it. And so a ladder company carried a complement of water rescue equipment, confined space equipment, and rope rescue equipment. So you could have a standardized dispatch that would include one of these rescue ladder companies with you on an incident. The problem that we have in the county I work here now in Thurston County is they're set up and can do a really good job with ALS calls, BLS calls, traffic accidents, and structural fires. But the problem is that nobody actually staffs the vehicle that has all the technical rescue equipment. Um, those are secondary or ancillary rigs that you know have to be selected by the individuals and brought. So at this point, uh, for better or worse, the jurisdiction that gets the incident, let's say a fall, they get the closest um, EMS unit and a fire unit, it's up to that agency to say, hey, this is a rescue call. And in our area, our rescue team is called SORT, Special Operations Rescue Team. Mm -hmm. So 
just the other day, they had an incident where someone fell and broke their ankle uh, by a gorge uh, next to a river. Initial responders get there, and then it was probably 15 or 20 minutes into the incident, hey, this is a sort call. So then our pagers go off and our active 911 goes off, and then we send, uh, it could be an engine company that has two rescue techs on it, they'll respond. Uh, one rescue tech is working at my station. They'll grab another guy and take the tech rescue rig. And so it's um, it's kind of a piecemeal response so that we get our magic number of six. Um, how could we solve that? Um, probably it would mean, you know, having some staffed units that have all that tech rescue equipment on them. Um, but at this point, uh, there are a lot of companies that have some rope rescue gear, but don't necessarily have rescue techs. Yeah. So what, then, what I rely on then is six is our magic number. I want six rescue technicians on scene. I could have 27 firefighters, but if I have six rescue technicians on most rope incidents, that's going to be fine. On a more complex one, we may have to call for additional ones. And that's also relying on the fact that um, most of the communities have an operations level trained firefighter for rope rescue. So they can do some basic anchoring. Uh, they can participate in a haul system. They can put projects on a rope and things like that via a litter attendant, you know, on a class four or class um, three uh, litter operation. Yeah. Yeah, that um, definitely seems like it would play into it. Making sure you have the right number of people showing up at the right time has got to be quite a struggle unless you – you know, are lucky enough to be like an FDNY where you you can just bang out that alarm and get another 25 people there. Hey, when I worked for the FDNY when we went on a rescue incident, and that was before we even had a special operations division. Um, yeah, it was like attack of the bumblebees. Yeah. You, know, you get 47, 50 guys in black and yellow coats in just yeah. a few minutes. Oh, man. Um, but for us, it's, it's six people, that magic number. Um, and then we need to fill positions. So we need to have what we're going to call the rescue group supervisor or the team leader. We want to have what we call a TR safety. And it's TR, technical rescue safety, because we have plenty of people trained as a safety officer. But that safety officer class really doesn't go into rope rescue at all. That's a generic position um, for building collapse. Um, and then depending on the incident, uh, we'll assign someone uh, as, as a rescuer or access uh, we may have a main and belay or rope one, rope two. Uh, if it's a bigger incident, we may assign somebody's rigging, litter attendant, anchors, whatever. Um, but but uh, we are going to use position position assignments, and uh, we're going to try to get those key positions in a vest as soon as possible. Um, of course, firefighters don't like to wear vests and, yeah. <laughs> and silly identifiers. But um, a couple of years ago, you may remember that uh, one of the Amtrak trains missed a turn and ended up uh, hanging over uh, I-5 and on I-5. Um, it was quite an incident. And uh, the guy who was the rescue supervisor, he's just started taking pictures of all the responders as they arrived to somehow keep track of them. And he's like, yeah, we got to start putting using those vests and I got to start using the command board mm -hmm. uh, to track all the guys. Yeah. Uh, so we actually have um, miniature rescue group supervisor boards and several rigs we already have a little passport name tags for all the personnel and we've got right in the rain notebooks with a pre-stamped um, position assignment card that they can start to fill out. So that's worked out well for us. Um, and then as far as the units, we, we, we just make sure that we have at least one of our rescue units that has a full complement of rope rescue gear on it yep. uh, so that we can get the basics. We, um, 
we pre-rig everything. Um, so uh, we've got a mainline bag, a belay bag, patient access bag, uh, packaging bag, an anchor bag. So um, it makes it pretty easy to make sure that you have all the gear you need. Um, and each bag has a specific task opposed to uh, guys trying to like look through a bunch of bags to find specific equipment. Yeah, that sounds like a really good way to set it up. Absolutely. And that, th- sy- that system works specifically for incidents where you're fairly close to the unit. Yeah. Um, if it's backcountry, we have a different system because people are arriving at different times. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. And one of the things that my business partner, who's kind of the best ropes guy I know, um, is always on me about is because I'm a paramedic, he's always advocating that I should do more technical training because he loves having the ability to have someone that's kind of cross-trained with some high-level medicine and some technical ability. Um, mm-hmm. um, as as much as I would love to just be a dope on a rope sometimes and just get hooked up and drop down and lift it up and you know do my medical thing, um, it is nice to know what's going on around me. And Right now, with where I'm at in my career, a lot of my experience has been more medicine focused. I just don't tend to be in those circles where we're doing the technical rescues. I just don't have the the amount of experience where I'm the top of the list for a lot of those selections. So if I'm showing up and I'm thinking medicine and somebody like you or you know my business partner showing up and they're thinking technical rescue, how do we balance those two priorities? And is there certain situations where you know, you're going to prioritize patient access a little quicker and other times where you're going to slow it down a little bit. And, you know, if you ever experienced a situation like that where you kind of had to balance the medical access and medical treatment of a critical patient versus the technical component of removing them from the predicament they're in. Yeah, well, well, obviously, first and foremost, somebody has to access the patient. And if they're in a technical place, the initial uh, person accessing them may be uh, one of our rescue members, who's an EMT, yeah. um, but we have only a couple of actual uh, paramedics that are out on the team as technicians. Um, so they initially, they access them, and then right away they have to decide, hey, is this patient stable enough for me to package up, move, and get them to a better place? Or, hey, we need a paramedic here, and if we don't have a qualified rope rescue paramedic, well, then we'll lower them into position. Yeah. yeah. Um, if it's in a trench, if it's in a confined space, uh, those might be different situations where they haven't been trained to operate in those areas. But certainly, you know, on a, on a cliff someplace or something like that or a place where they have to be lowered by a rope system, we'll just lower them into position. And then the discussion is, hey, you, the paramedic, you tell me, do I, do I have enough time to do this extensive patient packaging? Or, hey, Andy, this guy is going down the tubes right now. Let we need to move him like in a minute. So uh, for our guys, then that tells us, hey, we're not going to do an internal and an external lash. We're going to just do an internal lash, make sure they're secure to the litter, and we're going to start to hoist them um, versus you know additional packaging. Um, and so you know, I always tell all the guys that I train on the rescue team for the REMS team is that you have to interface with the medic and you have to work off of them. They're going to kind of tell you at what speed you need to operate. Um, and then what's our plan A and what's our plan B uh, for moving them? Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I think one thing that I always try to do my best is when we are running these incidents is just doing our best to all play nice in the sandbox because everybody's got something they want to do. You know, I've been on these incidents before where, 
you know, you have the fire chief or the incident commanders got some focus that he'd like to do. You have a technical rescue specialist that has a plan for what they want to do to get the patient, you know, uh, extracted. And, you know, and then you have the medical team that's looking to prioritize their interventions. And I think just reminding everyone on the scene that we're all trying to do the same thing and everybody's got an expertise and just trying to make sure that if there's an area where we can yield to allow someone else to get done what they need to get done and it won't affect the outcome of our mission, you know, it's, it's okay to, you know, play a little bit of song and dance and make sure that the right things are happening at the right times and not, uh, right. you know, not try to bring our hammer into the, the IC battle of the unified command that we always run into. So definitely. One of the, one of the first rescue calls I, I ran uh, with the team down here was a gentleman that fell 30 some odd feet into a hand dug well yeah. in water over his head and he's treading water. Um, and we had medics on scene. Well, those guys stood off to the side. We figured out a system, extracted him, got him up, turned him over to the medics. Um, obviously there was no reason to try to send a medic down into the well. Yeah. It's just one more guy that's going to be hypothermic. Um, just the other day, we had a call in a remote area of the county. Um, the local uh, volunteer firefighters got there. The medic unit got there, requested our team, said, hey, we've got somebody with a broken ankle on the other side of this river. Um, our guys got down there. Hey, what do you need? Well, patient stable. They got a broken ankle. I need a transporter across this riverbed and up the hill. Okay. So our guys put together a system. They actually um, did a shallow water crossing and uh, just got like 15 people and passed the litter uh, across the, the river, uh, then put them on a litter wheel up to the rig. Um, pretty straightforward, simple rescue. Um, but it was, you know, uh, on the, um, the lead of the paramedic explaining, you know, what he needed to have done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess my other question tied into the medical component here is, have you ever worked a situation where you have a prolonged extraction of a victim where let's say, you know, removing them from where they are is going to be quite a process, you know, and this could be any incident that comes to mind for you, where some type of medicine has to be done prior to moving the patient. And how do you facilitate that? And how do you encourage paramedics like myself to prioritize the use of gear? Because obviously, we're not going to be bringing a, you know, 50 pound cardiac monitor and, you know, all this other equipment and three bags and our CPAP bag and six bottles of oxygen. And, you know, how do you have that discussion with the paramedic about what should be done right on the scene? You know, when's that uh, when we're going to pull the trigger on a rapid extrication versus, you know, stabilizing them and then getting them up? And um, have you ever had Um, any experience working with that? Yeah, well, are you familiar with REMS teams? I'm I'm not. It, the acronym doesn't jump out to me. So uh, rapid extraction module support, which still doesn't tell you much. It's the firefighter rescue team for wildland fires. Okay, yeah. Um, and so we, we've been sending guys out for the last couple of summers, and I just got back from a few of those. So you've got to carry your wildland pack with you, with your fire shelter, and then you, you've got to carry your lightweight rope rescue equipment and your EMS gear. So you're pretty, uh, you know, hands are tied behind your back, so to speak, as far as what you have. And so basically what you do have is you have an incredible amount of manpower. Matter of fact, you have uncontrolled manpower. You've got guys that are all mad because their buddy is injured. Yeah. So you've got to be able to take control and the medic and you have to talk like, okay, what's our plan? Um, the good news is that even though it may be prolonged, uh, typically we can call for a helicopter. Um, so the biggest thing is going to be coordinating um, all the extra hands that you have. Mm-hmm. But you have to do more with less, so to speak. Um, I was on an incident once in Idaho 
where a woman had been thrown from a horse, had facial fractures, rib fractures, some extremity fractures, and I had very little equipment. I was a backcountry ranger. Mm -hmm. So I had to stabilize the patient um, and then uh, transport them on a clamshell uh, for quite a ways uh, and get to a a spot and make a hell of a spot for them. Um, If it was several hours, which in the big picture, that actually isn't that long uh, compared to other, you know, long carryouts or, or a cave rescue or something like that. But the biggest thing is one, it's addressing the needs of the patient. Like, Hey, that patient is insufficiently packaged for the next couple of hours because the temperature is going to drop 20 degrees, you know, and addressing that. Um, if at all possible, get that patient to urinate now, because normally you'd say, Hey, you know what? You're just going to pee in your pants and you'll be at the hospital in 30 minutes and they'll change you. But, you know, being soaking wet for multiple hours is not going to be good. So we're going to somehow try to get a urinal in there or something like that uh, and, and you know, help you relieve yourself. Um, make sure that since this is going to be a prolonged uh, incident, you've got access for IVs, you have access for monitoring the vitals. Um, and then the key is it isn't necessarily our person, but make sure that somebody is going to be that person's uh, patient person consistently and stay with them. Once they start to move, sometimes guys kind of forget. They forget that they're moving a person and they really get more involved if I've got this load and I've got to raise the load and the load has to travel horizontally and then down a slope. Mm-hmm. But hey, that is a person that, so that someone needs to talk to, that someone needs to monitor. Um, in some of our rescue scenarios, I've had patients actually fall asleep and start snoring. Oh, wow. Um, they were just completely ignored, yeah. which was a good reminder that, hey, you know, you need to be with this person. Um, which is why I think it's so important to use live patients and not mannequins uh, during the exercises. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. Absolutely. So one of the incidents that I remember, one of my first exposures in my call staff department that I ran into was a call that has unfortunately become kind of routine in my career, which is a person through the ice missing. So someone either, um, you know, this particular incident was a suicide attempt through the ice off of a bridge, but we've also had, you know, kayakers in the middle of the winter time. We've had people out walking on the ice where they come under the ice and then it, it turns into a um, submersion rescue where we start having dive teams in there, whether that's Colchester technical rescue or um, the state troopers or anything like that. And I remember specifically being on that bridge with the dive team working both Colchester technical rescue and the Vermont state troopers, which both have dive teams here. And uh, in my head, I guess I didn't quite understand the incident switching between rescue and recovery. I, I, no one have ever explained that to me. I guess I just, just kind of knew what I saw in the myths of EMS throughout the years of, you know, boy pulled out of the ice hours after submersion and is resuscitated with no long-term disability. And so I kind of always had it in my head that the person was going to come out of the come out of the river and we were going to resuscitate them and everything was going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anyone, not that they needed to really talk to the ambulance provider, but I don't think anyone really took the time to explain to me, Hey, we're, we're transitioning from a rescue mode to recovery mode. And this is what the change in resources is going to look like. This is what your role is going to be now that we're in recovery. You know, you're going to be primarily here for rescuers rather than the victim that's underneath the ice. And I guess I'm just curious what kind of factors go into the decision to switch from rescue to recovery? And how do you communicate that to guys, especially when you have young guys like myself who maybe don't 
understand what the data is behind that and maybe have that um, emotional response to wait a minute, we're giving up, we're stopping. Like, why can't we keep do this longer? And, and uh, what do you do that when is, you go through that? Well, that is a great question. And uh, I think um, you've probably, if it's an ice rescue incident, you've probably seen the video uh, that dive rescue had uh, from Chicago fire. I think it was Tommy Totlowitz that fell through the ice and they resuscitated him like 45 minutes later and he survived. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in my own mind, I'm thinking, yeah, 45 minutes. And, and I go on a call for a car that's gone into the Green River. It's the summertime, but the water's so-called cold. Mm-hmm. And I dive down and I do everything you're not supposed to do. Uh, and I actually get a guy out of the car uh, and we try to resuscitate him. And we actually uh, get his heart beating. Um, and um, eventually he starts to uh, make spontaneous respirations. He lived for a week and then he passed away. Um, but, you know, hey, you know, they're not dead until they're warm and dead is what's said. Yeah. Um, but then the thing is, so let's say we were there on scene for a couple of hours. Somebody, and back then nobody would have, but somebody would have to say, hey, this is now a recovery. We are working to get this deceased person out of this vehicle. We're going to bring him to shore and put him in a body bag. But if they don't tell everybody that, then you, as a medical person, are standing by, like, all ready to go. And then they pull them up. You're like, hey, what are you doing? And that has a severe impact on you. Yeah. So just this last winter, last January, we went to a trench rescue. Um, it was in January. It's snowing slightly in town. It's a snowstorm where we're going. And we've got about a 90-minute response. 45 minutes of it are like on mountain roads up in the hills, in the National Forest, um, which is not what we normally do. We are a suburban-urban team. Guys are in their class Bs, they're in BDUs, and they have like a, a rain jacket. Um, and a trench has collapsed, and a guy jumped in to try to get him out, and the trench collapsed more. The first guy was able to get himself free partially. Uh, other people jumped in, got him out, but the other pe- person is in there. When I get there, um, they drug one person out, and the medics uh, have them in a medic unit, and they're off to uh, go to the hospital. It's, it's snowing. It's too cloudy to get a helicopter in. So we get there and we look and you could see that the person was deceased uh, by their body position. So this is going to be a recovery. It's going to be a recovery uh, because it's an obvious fatality due to their body position. The amount of time that they've been in this position, you know, under the mud um, and they're not in a survivable space um, um, and they haven't been seen or heard from, you know, in an hour. Uh, at this point. All right. We make the announcement. This is a recovery. It's hard, but the guys realize that. And we make a plan for how we're going to try to do it, some kind of a safe recovery. But come four o'clock, we still don't have an operator for the backhoe. And it's going to get dark soon and it's snowing. So I conferred with some of the other chief officers that were on site. Like, yep, we're going to pull the plug on this. We're going to leave a deputy here. We're going to go back off the mountain. Tomorrow, we're going to come back with a methodical plan to do a body recovery. And one of the guys was like, hey, uh, this is wrong. We should stay and get this guy out. It's not right to leave him here. And in fact, if, if you're not going to let us do that, that means you really don't trust us as rescuers. Um, and, I, and so I'm standing on the back step of one of the rigs, uh, and I've got almost my entire team. And they're like getting ready to have a mutiny. Um, and it was really uncomfortable. And I don't think the person that voiced his opinion realized the, the 
the difficulty he was creating. So we drive down the mountain, and it's a teary drive down between my partner and I in the rig. And I get down to the bottom, and one of the other chiefs says, hey, we, we got to do something. These guys are really upset. So I got to call everybody together uh, and say, hey, listen, I trust every one of you with my life, but I owe it to your family to send you home and to try to do a recovery operation in the dark, in the snow, and then we're going to have to drive down in the ice. That is irresponsible mm-hmm. to all, your, all you and your family members. We're going to come back tomorrow and make a plan. And interestingly enough, they're like, hey, we could probably get him out in about 30 minutes. They went back the next day. I think it took five hours yeah. uh, to get him out. And it was worse. Um, so it's important to let everybody know once you switch from rescue to recovery and then recognize that that is going to have an impact on guys emotionally. And you got to be prepared for that um, because we are rescuers. We are not recoverers, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, I always draw the parallels to, I don't know if you guys are doing this out um, on the West Coast, but pretty recently within the last, you know, five or 10 years, we started this process of termination of resuscitation where we arrive on scene and, you know, we work a full cardiac arrest. And after 20 minutes, if we haven't had any shockable rhythms and we haven't had any change in patient condition, we can actually call the hospital and um, terminate care and leave the patient on the scene for the coroner to come and package them up and bring them to the funeral home. And this was, this is really, really new for some of our more senior guys who spent, you know, 15, 20 years just putting them in the ambulance and driving them to the hospital no matter what. And that to them felt mm-hmm. like they were helping. And this whole new process is all data driven. And it's actually proven that, you know, those people that we were sending after 20 minutes, you know, have little to no survivability at all. And statistically, right. it's insignificant to to bring them and it burdens the healthcare system. And there's all these other reasons. And, you know, they talked about the you know, the actual psychological healing of family members of having that closure rather than the false hope of red lights and sirens going to the hospital with someone everybody knows is not going to be able to be resuscitated. And I just, I draw that parallel because I've, as a paramedic, I've been in positions where I have to explain that to, you know, more senior members, 20, 25 year lieutenants of, Hey, this is an unsurvivable situation, you know, and, and I can commiserate with what you're feeling. And I think, it's definitely worth noting that there are people like me and young people who they get in the business of rescuing. You want to be, it says fire rescue, not fire recovery, you know, and, and they want to do those types of things. But in the, the, you know, critical dive incidents that I've been on, many of them have lasted, you know, upwards of two days where we get to, you know, dusk and people are not going to be diving in water with obstacles and snags in the middle of the night. They're going to, you know, for a recovery, they're going to take a break. They're going to come back bright and early in the morning. And that can be a tough conversation for, you know, the chiefs and the technical rescue um, specialists and supervisors to have with family members of, Hey, we're, we're going to go home, you know, to our families, but we're going to come back tomorrow and deal with this. And I think that's, you know, I, I feel for you guys trying to have that conversation, not only with the rescuers, but with bystanders and family too. That's got to be tough. Yeah, I mean, at, at that point, your job is no different than a car mechanic. Hey, I went to work Monday. I worked as long as I could. It got late. I went home. I'm, I'm working on the carburetor tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, that, it's a job at that point, but you're going to go home. Um, you think back, well, hey, when, you know, when I started in EMS, I became an EMT in 1978. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We'd get the guy in the back of the rig, you know, you're doing one-handed CPR all the way to the hospital. Yeah. Um, and of course, you realize now the CPR you were doing was terrible because we only do CPR for a couple of minutes now. Um, 
And then, of course, as it was, you couldn't even stand up the next day because you were bent over for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so we're, we're doing better medicine and we're getting feedback on studies and trying to figure out what's the best way to deal with those things. And, and how safe was it to be racing down the road with a bunch of guys in the back of the rig, unbelted, you know, doing CPR, yeah, um, racing through traffic. Yeah, and I'm pretty excited to have some of these new protocols and have the support from the hospital because those same folks that struggle with leaving people on scene for the tour have also had, you know, more return of spontaneous circulation incidents with these new medicine protocols than they've ever seen before. I, I One of my lieutenants that was on the show before is a, you know, 20 plus year guy. And he said, you know, the first 15 years of his career, he never saw someone get revived from a cardiac arrest just because of the nature of the way they were handling it. You know, you pick them up, you throw them right. in the truck, you blast them to the hospital on a non-rebreather on a backboard with one hand CPR, like you said. And now we can sit down and, the you know, people like myself and other people, we can shock the patient. We can do good, high quality, uninterrupted, high performance CPR, like what you guys are doing out in King County in that area, you know, and we can actually use the data and the evidence to give ourselves the best chance and now people are getting resuscitated. So that's that's big buy-in with these with these guys. Is it only takes a couple of those resuscitations before they're like, wait a minute, this new medicine might there might be something here because we're getting pulses back and we're actually right. people are leaving the hospital and and uh, I think you got to have that balance because if you don't have the balance, I mean it it can be tough to leave people on scene like that, especially if people have never done that before. Yeah, our guys, you know, here and up in Snohomish County, they pretty much we would run the code at the site yeah. versus trying to get him in the rig and take off. Yeah. Um, unless there was a particular reason not to. Oh, absolutely. And I guess the last thing I would just want to wrap up with is, you know, with your experience, what's some advice that you have for people that want to get into technical rescue? And just right now we just hired a new group of recruits and I went around the room and asked what their specialties, you know, what they'd like their specialties to be. And almost all of them said, technical rescue. They're looking into rope rescue, water rescue, dive rescue. It seems like it's becoming more and more popular. And what would be the advice that you would give people who are looking to get into this field? Well, I would say that uh, unlike other skills, these are very perishable skills. So you take a rope rescue class, um, you need to practice. You need to like say, hey, this is going to be my passion. And if you just, and if you get on a team and they say, oh, we do like two trainings a year, if that's all you do, you are never going to master your trade. Um, so, hey, practice. Practice with gloves on. Practice blindfolded. You know, practice with one hand. Whatever it takes so that you can work in adverse conditions. Practice in the dark. Um, you know, and work together. Um, the other thing is once you are working together, um, you know, utilize the incident command system. Make assignments. One person is the anchor for the main line. One person is the anchor for the belay line. Um, we do that in structural firefighting. You know, we assign someone to the hydrant, we assign a team to the roof, but yet in the fire service, when we start to do rope rescue equipment, you look and there's like seven guys. What are you guys doing? Well, we're rigging up the anchor for the main line. Yeah. And when we're done with that, we're going to set up the belay line. Like, oh, well, that's not very time efficient. And, yeah. and this is all about time. Yeah. So absolutely. Uh, f- find a good mentor in your department or nearby and, uh, and work with them. Yeah, absolutely. That's great advice. Well, Andy, I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day. I know you're a busy man. You got a lot of stuff going on, but um, I think a lot of people are going to get something out of this and you answered a ton of questions for me and I really appreciate it. Um, And if you're ever out on the West Coast, um, you got my phone number. So we'll have to meet up and have a coffee and 
and uh, we'll, yeah, maybe we'll get through this COVID thing and actually talk about some real rescue stuff and you can show me some tips. The next time I'm up in Burlington. Perfect. Yeah, we love Burlington. So come on by. Well, thank you so much, Andy. Really appreciate it. Okay. Have a good night.